other, and they've got their faces and their devices the whole time. And uh, uh, it's just, it's a danger, and of course, you know, and I also think it's funny. Uh, certain people I know love to take pictures of every uh, food that they're going to eat. You know, like uh, years later, people are going to be going through family albums. Oh, look at that. They really had a good meal that day, you know. It's just funny to me, but uh, I hope this Christmas that you'll really connect. Well, I want to, uh, I guess I should start by in a way, way of an apology to you. I got up here uh, yesterday for the um, the service for the Tamil church, and, and Judy and I came together. And they had just sent me a text invitation said, you know, would you please join us? We'd love it if you would join us for for our Christmas celebration, and I said, yes, we'll come. And so I came, and, you know, it was kind of a once-a-year deal. I think the Telugu Church has me speak to them every January, and I thought, well, this, I, I need to go to the Tamil Church. And so I came up for that celebration, and uh, I wasn't expecting to do anything except sit in the pew and watch, and I took lots of pictures. I'm only going to show you a few today, but I'll, I'll put them all on on uh, Google and send you a link so that you can see more of the pictures and even a few videos that I took uh, during the service because I want you to see what you're involved in by providing them a place to worship. Uh, And they're just so appreciative of that and uh, very appreciative of of the pastors and of the church in general. Uh, But then right as they were getting up to have their speaker, Dr. Abe Johnson, who, who did a marvelous job, by the way. Uh, and I told him I was going to probably borrow part of his sermon today. But uh, they asked if, you know, so would the pastor come up and, and uh, give us a little bit of a Christmas message and say a, say a prayer for us? Well, I wasn't prepared, so I came up and I thought about the sermon I preached to you last week, which was the first half of this sermon, about so much of what we know about Christmas just isn't so. But there's so many misconceptions that Christmas movies have given us and that uh, even plays and churches have given us that aren't in keeping with what the Bible tells us. Uh, we've had a lot of traditions, like the wise men showing up at the manger. That never happened. It's not in Scripture. They showed up at a house when Christ was a child. They never came to the manger. Only the shepherds made it to the manger. And, and uh, it was not a wooden manger. It was a stone manger. And we went through all of those things last week about how Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born in a place uh, that was associated with Rachel's death when she gave birth to Benjamin. Bethlehem's always been associated with death. Jesus was born to die. He was born to die for us. How Bethlehem was a place they kept sacrificial lambs and that they raised sacrificial lambs and that um, there, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Mary and Joseph went to one end, couldn't find room, went to another end, couldn't find room, went to another end and couldn't find room The fact of the matter is they couldn't find room because Mary was about to give birth to a child and according to the Levitical law in the Old Testament, the minute she had a child and had an issue of blood, everything in her room would have been contaminated. Anyone who came into the room would have been ceremonially unclean. So if you saw a pregnant woman, you had an in, it looked like she's about to give birth to a child, you just said no. Because that would have made everyone there ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't have been able to go to uh, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the temple in in New Testament times. And so they couldn't go there. So it wasn't that they tried a bunch of inns, which is what the Christmas plays always have. In Christmas plays, they try this inn, this inn, this inn. Finally, some innkeeper says, well, you can use the stable out back. 
Well, that's another problem because the stable outback would have had other animals in it, donkeys, camels, etc. And that's what we see in every nativity crash scene set up. And yet, the Bible tells us specifically that the Messiah would come from Migdal Adar, which is a thousand steps outside of downtown Bethlehem. And it was a manger that was used only for the birth of Passover lambs. And uh, because only Passover lambs even grazed in that area. They didn't even allow other animals in the fields. Only lambs could eat there. And they only used this manger when there was inclement weather and a ewe was about to give birth. And they would bring the ewe in there. And when she gave birth, because sacrificial lambs, they needed 720 of these a year, had to be perfect. The, the law said there could be no blemish in them, no flaw. So the minute the lamb was born, they wrapped that lamb in swaddling cloth so that it couldn't move, and they laid it in a stone manger until it calmed down and got used to its new environment. Because otherwise it would thrash about and it could cut itself, nick itself, and it would make it unworthy to be a sacrificial lamb. Jesus, when, when God told Joseph that his wife Mary was with child from the Lord and that he was not to leave her and he was to take care of her. And when it came time for her to give birth, he knew instantly where there was one clean place, not only clean in the normal clean sense because this manger was kept clean regularly, but it had even been anointed. It was anointed on a regular basis by the priest. It was made holy. So it was clean. It was sanitary. It was holy. It was undercover and he knew exactly where to go because he was from Bethlehem. He had grown up around raising Passover lambs and he thought we can go to the manger at Migdal Adar. And that's exactly, it's called the Tower of the Flock is what Migdal Adar translates from Hebrew into English. And we're, I pointed out the Old Testament scriptures last week that they went to Migdal Adar. And you remember when the angels come and told the shepherds that, that the, the Messiah had born, been born and they could go see him. The Bible said very specifically they went immediately to the manger. In other words, they didn't have to go to this end, check the stable out back, check that stable out back, check that stable out back, looking for the Messiah. They knew instantly that the, the one manger that they would go to, that uh, because the Old Testament scripture said the Messiah would be born at Migdal Adar in Bethlehem Ephratah, which means Bethlehem is the house of bread. Jesus said he's the bread of life. Ephratah means the Lord's fruitfulness. And Jesus is, is, uh, talks to us about he's the vine and we're the branches in John 15. And so the, the, the imagery is beautiful. They knew instantly where to go. They didn't have to hunt through all the stables. They instantly went to Migdal Adar. And so I showed you the tower that had been built there. And I showed you the promontory or the, the hill from which shepherds watched their flocks uh, by night. And the shepherds went immediately there. And so we get so many of the Christmas stories wrong anyway. So I got up. And after spending uh, probably 45, 50 minutes on my message last week, uh, I gave, you wouldn't believe it, probably an 8 to 10 minute summary of that message. So I, I owe you an apology for listening to me so long last week. Uh, but we had a great service with the Tamil Church and uh, they were just a, a real joy to be around. Now, now last week I started with this quote from Ronald Reagan and he based it on some other people. He says, it isn't so much that liberals are ignorant, it's just that they know so many things that aren't so. And we have, over the years, learned too many things about Christmas that aren't so. So I want to pick up a little bit where we left off last time. So now we know that there was one specific manger 
Uh, We don't have to guess where it is. The Old Testament told us precisely where it was. And it was a manger used only for Passover lambs to be born. The swaddling cloths, and and by the way, Dr. Abe Johnson brought up something I never thought of before. Uh, We we talked about how the swaddling cloths were wrapped around lambs to keep them from damaging themselves. Jesus was wrapped wrapped in swaddling cloths uh, not only to keep him warm, but to give that image that he would be the perfect sacrificial lamb. But here's the part I never thought about. There's two times that the Bible mentions Jesus and the cloth in which he was wrapped. One is at his birth. The other is when they went into the empty tomb at, uh, at the resurrection and they saw the linen cloth lying there. And, and Dr. Johnson pointed out that we wrap presents at Christmas but it's when we unwrap them that we actually receive the gift. And he said Jesus was presented to mankind at the manger, but he becomes available to us at the resurrection. I thought that was great. That was worth the whole trip just to come and hear that little analogy that Dr. Johnson shared. But let me pick up on on the story now. Jesus has now been born. Uh, The law required that there were seven days of purification uh, set aside after uh, the birth, and then there was another 33 days after that. So it's now 40 days after the birth of Jesus. And Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple to to be dedicated. And uh, I'm not going to... Actually, there's eight days first, because on the eighth day is when they were circumcised and dedicated, but then Mary still has to have another 32, 33 days apart. So let me read here from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising the child, his name was called Jesus. So he gets his name. Of course, Jesus means Savior, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And the first male child was always dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And you remember last week I pointed out that um, this shows you that the wise men had not shown up yet. Because in the law, you could only give a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons if you were poor. Otherwise, there was a more expensive sacrifice required. And had Joseph and Mary received the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they would have not been offering a pair of turtle doves uh, for the dedication. Let's go on verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. 
She was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what this means. I think it just means she was 84 years old at this point, even though she'd only been married for, for uh, uh, basically uh, seven years. Uh, so she's been a widow for a while now, essentially. Uh, and I've known people like that uh, in my ministry. It says, and... Um, it says she was a widow of about 84 years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. By the way, just a little side note here. The Bible tells churches which widows they should support. It tells them that young widows should go back and, and remarry so they don't become busybodies going about from house to house gossiping. But it says that, that a widow should be supported by the church if she does a couple things. One is if she doesn't have family to support her. Uh, secondly, she has to have showed hospitality to ministers in the past. Uh, and uh, she's, in other words, she has been a blessing to people that were in the ministry. But then also that they be, be in prayers day and night for the church. This is what Paul told Timothy. And so actually if a church supports a widow, they're, they're really on paid staff. They are the paid praying widows. That's what they're supposed to do. And of course, Anna certainly meets this definition. She made it her life's ministry to be in prayers day and night. Um, I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that, but years ago when I was pastoring in Palestine, Texas, there was a lady in our congregation, Emma Conaway, and everybody just called her Aunt Emma. And uh, I would go see, Aunt Emma never attended church while I was pastor there because she was well into her 90s, and it was just hard for her to get out. Uh, but I would go see her almost every week, and I would drop by, and I would visit with her. And of course, this is the day before we had the Internet. I don't think she ever got to hear me preach unless a church member took a tape player over to her, which may have happened. And, uh, but I would go see her every week, and, and uh, there was something interesting when you walked into Aunt Emma's house is that you felt that the presence of God was there. And I don't think I've ever experienced that at any other place in my life, quite like I experienced it at Aunt Emma's. You walked in and you just knew God was there. Now, she was mostly blind, but she, could, she had a pack of these missionary cards that our denomination used to put out. And there were pictures of the missionaries in the front, including our pastor and his wife while they were in Taiwan as missionaries. And you would see that she could make out the name on the back. She couldn't read all the, the data, but she could see the person's name and the country that they were missionaries to. And she would pray for that missionary. And it would be a different missionary family every day. And then she'd pray for her pastor every day, even though she never really got to come and hear me preach. But when you walked in, you could sense that the presence of God was there. The interesting thing was is that Aunt Emma went and had cataract surgery. And she came home and that afternoon called one of the ladies in my church and she says, Edna, I can read my Bible again. There was nothing, it was so exciting to Aunt Emma that she could see her Bible again after the cataract surgery. She died about three days later. Not from any complications, just from the fact that she was 97 years old and it was time for the Lord to call her home. But she was so rejoicing that she could read her Bible again. And, of course, three days later, her vision became truly perfect. Uh, but I was, I was a little sad, not just because I lost someone that I had grown to love, but I thought, you know, this lady, she had outlived all her children. I thought there will be nobody at the funeral. She had one granddaughter, one nephew, and one niece. That was the only family she had. And so I imagined myself at the funeral home preaching to three people. 
the funeral home was packed, every pew. And I had just shared how that every time I went to Aunt Emma's, I felt the Spirit of God and I knew that she was truly a prayer warrior and I knew that her prayers were there. And the fact is, I could tell pretty much the moment she died, there was something different in my life in ministry because I didn't have that same prayer cover that I had. And I know that's sub- totally subjective. I can't even explain it to you. It's just something I realized was true. And almost to a person, everyone at that funeral came up to me later and said, that's why we're here because we used to live in the community and Aunt Emma prayed for us. I thought, what a powerful ministry that even though you're kind of housebound, in fact, Aunt Emma only had indoor plumbing the last two years of her life. Uh, Imagine going 94 years with having to make a trip out to the outhouse. Uh, She did. Uh, But I just think it was so remarkable that she was known for a prayer. And I I think Anna was a lot like this. She was a woman of prayer. And I think you could have sensed the Spirit of God uh, around her. And in verse 38 it says, And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise in the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now I want you to notice one thing, and this is a detail a lot of people don't notice is when they go to dedicate Jesus at the temple on the eighth day of his life and he's given this name, did you notice this, that both Simeon and Anna give testimony to who Jesus is? And the reason why is in the Old Testament law it says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be confirmed. In other words, it wouldn't be enough for just Simeon to say, now I've seen the Messiah. We had to have another witness and Anna forms that witness. So let's talk about Several of the wonders here at the temple dedication. First of all, in verse 27, it says that Simeon came by the Spirit. And of course, King James says Holy Ghost first. And we know the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, but it says he came by the Spirit. God brought him there with precise timing. In other words, Simeon, Anna, it seems like, must have stayed at the temple all the time from the description. But Simeon was led to go at a certain time Uh, by the Holy Spirit of God. And he starts out by praising God. And then he gives some very precise and somewhat unusual words to Mary. He says, first of all, that this, this child should be set for the fall and rising again of many. And, and it calls him a sign which shall be spoken against. And it says, the sword shall pierce through your, thine own soul also. And then, of course, Anna bears fruit to the same things or bears testimony to the same things. And so that's that second witness required by the law to establish something is true. And really, it's, it's amazing what, what these words mean that Simeon says, a fall and rising again. Uh, yeah. If you really think about it, the gospel's weird in some ways uh, because you, you have to die before you can live. Uh, we have to die to ourselves and so that we can live to Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die before the resurrection. Uh, the fall has to happen before the rise. And so the death's before the resurrection. Uh, you have to recognize your sinner before you can become a saint. Paul says in Romans 6 that even as Christ died and was buried, you know, in the same way when we baptize one, he says, even so you also shall walk in newness of life. And so uh, we have to walk in newness of life after we've died to sin. And, and then we go from abject poverty. We have absolutely nothing to offer to God. There is nothing in me that God looked at Robert one day and said, you know, uh, I'm going to let Robert come to heaven because he's better looking than most people. You know, that might be true, but then, uh, no, seriously. He didn't do that for me. He certainly didn't do it because I had more hair than other people. Uh, but 
He just showed me His grace because He's God and He can and He loved me and because I received Jesus Christ. Now, always remember, don't ever forget this, it's not enough to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. The Bible doesn't say all those who believe in Jesus go to heaven. It says in John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. You have to receive Jesus. That's different than just believing. It means you invite Him into your heart. You ask Him to be your Lord and Savior. You acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner. So you have to understand that you have nothing in your life, no matter how good you are, to offer God to impress Him because He's not impressed with your righteousness or mine. But what does he do? He, when we invite him into our heart, we not only get to go to heaven, but Ephesians 1 says that we become joint heirs together with Christ. Isn't that amazing? I go from having nothing to having all the riches of heaven at my disposal. And that's, that's, a, that's a lot. It's an amazing thing. And it talks about Mary's heart being pierced. Uh, one, Mary had this happen for the rest of her life because... Let's face it, Jesus was constantly under ridicule. Mary was constantly under ridicule, and here's why. Everybody knew that Mary had become pregnant out of wedlock. That was tough. Uh, It was so tough that Joseph thought to divorce her. The Bible says he thought privately or privily to put her away, meaning to give her a divorce. Now, in the Old Testament law, divorce was different than it is today, and it's even different and Old Testament law than it was by Jesus' time. But in Old Testament law, the Bible is very clear about the fact that you would get betrothed. And legally, you're married when you're betrothed. You became Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so at that point. And what happened was you exchanged vows. There was a vow of exchange. There was a ceremony. There was exchange of certain items in which you entered a, uh, a vow or a covenant together. In fact, his men can enter covenants together. The Bible says David and Jonathan had a covenant together. And the Bible tells us that David uh, took off his belt and gave it to Jonathan. Jonathan gave him his belt because belt goes around you. It's a circle, which circles are always the symbol of a covenant. Uh, I flew out on... um, my wife will have to help me. I can't remember if it was New Year's Eve or or Christmas Eve that I I flew out to Los Angeles to marry a couple. Uh, It was which one? New Year's Eve, thank you. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, the bride was from Canada. The groom was from Australia. Uh, they were in a Christian ministry together. And one day, the groom, is, is, his name was Scott, and Scott's talking about, oh, how he left his girl back, back friend, a girlfriend back in Australia, and he missed her. And I just said, Scott, you are overlooking the obvious, because I said, you know, Monica is perfect for you. She's a sweet, beautiful Christian who just glows with the presence of the Lord. You, I don't know why you're mourning somebody back in Australia. And he suddenly realized I was right. And so when they got married, they said, would you come do our wedding? So uh, this was a complicated wedding because her family's in Canada, his family's in Australia. They decided to get married in Los Angeles and fly the preacher out from Texas. But I, well, Judy and I were poor back then, so we got standby tickets and we were at the airport for a number of days before we ever got to fly out. And we finally get out there and our, our, uh, our luggage and our, my deodorant had been in Los Angeles for three days before I got there. We got reunited. We got to the wedding 30 minutes before the wedding was to start. They later said that 14 people had been saved watching the video of the wedding. Uh, so it was a wonderful thing. Uh, but um, uh, it, it, was, it was such a beautiful experience. And I'm trying to wonder how I got down this, this rabbit trail now of why I was... Oh, so while I was on the plane, 
on the way to the wedding, I looked out the plane window, and it's the first time I've ever seen a rainbow from a plane. And it's a perfect circle of color. We only see a semicircle down here, but from up there, God's perspective, it's a circle. So there was this covenant exchanged when people were married. Then they were considered legally married, but the marriage was not physically consummated. The husband would go back to the, usually the father's home or property. He would build there either an addition onto the house or a new house on the same property uh, to prepare a place for his bride. And at some point he would come back with his groomsmen. They would blow a trumpet to announce their arrival. It could be in daytime, could be in nighttime. It was about a year later. And uh, so they would come back and then the, the bride had to be ready with her bridesmaids. And of course we, there's a parable in the New Testament of the ten virgins who are, are, are supposed to have their lamps filled waiting in case the groom arrives at night at an unexpected moment and uh, some were ready and some were not uh, and uh, that's another whole thing but then they, they would go back there would be a wedding feast and then the marriage would be physically consummated and under Old Testament law once the marriage was physically consummated there was no divorce the only time they could do it was in this year between the time they were legally married and when the marriage was physically consummated so it was the only time they could do it and the Bible even then had pretty strict regulations. The husband had to be able to accuse his wife of uncleanness. And by uncleanness, it means marital infidelity. And uh, then he could put her away with a, what was called a writ or a letter of divorcement. And that even then, bear in mind, they haven't even physically consummated the marriage yet. So what's the, you know... It, they can divorce, but only under the most serious of circumstances. Because in God's eyes, marriage starts with a vow. It starts with a vow before the Lord. And that's when marriage really starts. And even then, Jesus said that Moses permitted divorce, he says, for the hardness of your hearts. So in other words, he said, this is the reason we're doing it. Now by Jesus' day, this has changed. There's one school of rabbis in Jesus' day that basically said that if your wife uh, cooked your, your, what was supposed to be your sunny side up eggs and she gave them to you over easy or maybe they were overcooked, you could divorce her because she'd messed up your eggs. Or she turned around in the street, one rabbi said, if her, the skirt of her garment rose above her ankles, you could divorce her because she was, she was being too loose with her morals. Uh, and, and we had another school that said there's never any cause for divorce. Well, Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant, and it's during this betrothal period they're legally married, but it, they have not moved in together yet. And the Bible says he thought privately to divorce her. And so we know that an angel comes and he tells Joseph, the one who's in you is in you by the or in your in Mary is there by the Holy Spirit, and you need this is this is God's son, this is the Messiah. You better stick with her, and so he did. But that didn't stop all the talk. In fact, is John eight nineteen, uh, you hear see the Pharisees uh, teasing Jesus. Where is your father? See, they they know that uh, uh, Joseph isn't really his father. They've heard the story. Uh, the gossip has made its way through the grave. This had to be no picnic for either Mary or Joseph. John 8, verses 38 through 42, the, the Pharisees taunt Jesus saying, Well, Abraham is our father. In other words, you could be, you could, your, your dad could be a Gentile for all we know. Uh, and they, they mocked him and they said that. In fact, is they say, We are not born of fornication. 
that by implying that Jesus was born of that kind of relationship. John 8, 46 through 49. Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan. So a Samaritan is basically when an Edomian or a descendant uh, of Esau married a descendant of, of Isaac. And they, they call these Samaritans. They're, they're a mixed breed. They're basically calling Jesus a half-breed in a very, uh, in a very uh, mean, uh, spirited way. Now, we also see here that there's an offering of two turtle doves or pigeons. And it says in Leviticus 12 that the law must require a woman to bring a lamb and a pigeon or a turtle dove for an offering when her days of uh, purification were ended. So normally you would have to bring a lamb. But if you couldn't afford the lamb, then you could bring uh, a turtle dove. It says but the, uh, in Leviticus 5.7, if you could not afford to bring a lamb, you could bring a pair of turtle doves. Or pigeons. So this shows that the Magi had not yet visited to give their goals of, of uh, frankincense and myrrh. Now let's talk about the star and the Magi, because this happens next. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, we kind of need to review what, what's going to happen. The Magi see a star, and they came from the east to Jerusalem. And as Brother Stephen said in the Bible study this morning, you always went up to Jerusalem if you were uh, a Jew. But they came from the east to Jerusalem. They came for the purpose of worshiping the one who was to be born king of the Jews. Uh, these are thought to be the Parthians, and the Parthians were sometimes referred to kingmakers. They often showed up when a person was being inaugurated uh, as a king. And, but the problem happened in chapter 2 and verse 4. It says that when they got close to Jerusalem, the star disappeared. So they didn't, they didn't know which way to go anymore. They, it, it disappeared. And so they go and inquire of Herod and Herod's scholars, where is the king of the Jews going to be born? Well, Herod didn't like this question. He thought he was the king of the Jews. And by the way, he is actually an Edomian. He's not fully Jew. Uh, but uh, they, they said, where, where is this one born in the king of the Jews? And, and Herod was so upset that he goes and inquires of the scholars. And the scholars said, well, according to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem Ephratah. Now, there were three Bethlehems, two of which were close to Jerusalem. And it was specifically Bethlehem Ephratah. And uh, he asked of the, the uh, Parthians or the Magi, when did you see the star appear? And they said, well, we started seeing it quite a while ago. And so just to be on the safe side, Herod orders the execution of all children in Bethlehem, all male children in Bethlehem, uh, age two and under. Just imagine the screams and the howling and the cries uh, of this, that caused by this wicked king Herod. Uh, so then they leave Jerusalem, and when they are on their way to Bethlehem, the star reappears. Now here we have an astronomical problem. The star first went from the east to the west, leading from the east where they were to Jerusalem, and now it goes from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, so the star is now traveling from the northwest to the southeast. In other words... What they saw in the sky changed directions. So that's going to be a problem when we look at some of the alternatives for what this star uh, was. So the Magi were warned in a dream after they had seen, and now look at this, it says they came to a house in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Not the manger, not a stable, they came to a house. And when they got to the house, it says where the young child was. Now you have to understand in Greek, there's the word brephos, which means an infant or sometimes an unborn infant. Infant. That's the word used when Paul says to Timothy, you have known from the time you were a brephos, the scriptures. It means that Timothy's mother and grandmother likely read the Old Testament scriptures to him while he was still in the womb. 
See, God considers that life while you're still in the womb. And then uh, this word, though, is technos, which means a young child. And then later you would have weos, which would mean a full-grown uh, older boy or a man. But in other words, a son that is an heir by proper right. Uh, so uh, it's a young child is here, so he's a toddler at this point in time, basically. And then the Magi were warned, don't go back the way you came. Uh, you, need to, you need to head home a different way, and they did. And by the way, this drives me nuts because in the uh, last Joseph and Mary Nativity movie that came out of Hollywood, they totally messed this part up. All right, so who were these Magi? I've already mentioned they were the kingmakers, they were the Parthians. Uh, there is a tradition, it's not scripture certainly, but there's a tradition uh, that there were three kings by the name of Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. And you'll watch a lot of Christmas movies about this time and it'll use those names. Uh, thing about Magi is most of them actually worshipped, they, they did have a monotheistic religion, meaning that there was one God, but they worshipped a God named Zoroaster, which is not the same God as the God that we worship. So it's odd for these particular people who would come from a group of people worshipping Zoroaster, it's odd for them to be looking for a Jewish God, <laughs> to be looking for uh, Jehovah, as uh, Brother Kieran sang about earlier. Uh, but they were specialists in astronomy, but I think that they're from a different group of magi, because uh, another name for Zoroaster was often Ahura Mazda, and uh, if they had been those people worshipping Ahura Mazda, they would not have shown up to worship Jesus. But they were looking for a specific sign, which is a star out of Jacob. So they knew there was a star that should come up over where Jerusalem was, somewhere in that general direction. They looked for it. There was a sign. And I believe that these are descendants of the Magi over which Daniel ruled. We're told in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48 that he became the head of the Magi. And he would have taught them from the Jewish scriptures. And he would have taught them about the star out of Jacob. And here's the reference, Daniel 2.48. Then the king made Daniel a great man, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men or magi of Babylon. So he would have trained uh, those wise men in Babylon. And they would have known from tradition handed down through hundreds of years that there was a coming king who would be king over all the earth. And they should look for a star rising out of Jacob in order to see him. He was their chief and there was, of course, a plot that came against Daniel. You remember uh, by other people in the government uh, called the satraps who were governors. That wasn't from the Magi. The Magi didn't plot against him. It was the governors because they felt like he had too much power. He should have just stayed in his place. And yet he is now over all Babylon, second only to, to the king. Uh, there were a lot of Jews that remained in Babylon after the end of the exile when many Jews returned to the promised land some remained behind and they were influenced by Daniel's messianic teaching uh, and uh, Numbers twenty four seventeen, that star out of Jacob it was associated with the new scepter rising in Israel let's, let's just look at these I've highlighted the key verses but uh, you'll notice this is kind of in a poetry form when it's written in the original language so uh, look here it says I shall see him but not now I shall behold him but not nigh there shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter, that is a king, shall rise out of Israel. And shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy the children of Sheth, and Edom shall be a possession. Seir shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. So he's saying that uh, the descendants of Esau basically are going to be overcome uh, by, by this king. 
Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. In other words, a king. And shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. And so Daniel taught these prophecies to the Magi. And they were looking. These are Magi who are looking for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. As Daniel had taught them that he would be the one to have dominion. Well, they come and of course they bring three gifts. And you remember last week I showed you the video clip of little kids trying to tell the story and they had him giving all kinds of gifts. My favorite was a little girl who thought boysenberry was one of the gifts. Uh, but uh, they brought gold, which of course was a picture of the kingly quality of the reign of Christ. And frankincense, which was used in, in worship. Uh, and it talks about the fact that Christ is a, a priest. And then myrrh was something that the uh, bodies were used to be anointed with. It was very fragrant, kind of covered up the smell of the decay. And so it was talking about the sacrificial death of Christ. So we even see this mentioned in John 19.39 where Nicodemus is uh, uh, there after the death of Jesus is there came also Nicodemus which at first came to Jesus by night and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pound weight. He came to anoint the body of Jesus. By the way, this is another freebie. Jesus' body was wrapped from end to end. Not, not, just, not like a mummy side to side, but he's wrapped from end to end. Uh, and then he, they had parts that tucked in so it was a very tight wrapping. And uh, then they put this mixture of aloe and spices on, and it tells us it's about a hundred pound weight. This is this is not a uh, small amount of stuff, uh, and basically it almost acts like cement at some point. And some people want to say that Jesus never really died; he just uh, awoke in the tomb, and somehow or other with uh, the cement-like mixture on and his body totally wrapped. And in spite of the fact he's had a spear up into his side and he's been uh, brutally whipped and he had beard pulled from his face and a crown of thorns pushed in his head. He had copious blood loss. He managed somehow to hang on uh, the cross from 9 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. Uh, and uh, they pushed a, a spear into his heart so that the blood and serum came out separated. That somehow or other he survived all that. He was really alive and even with this hundred pound mixture on him he just somehow or other hops over to the door, knocks over the rock and escapes the tomb. Oh come on people. Just give up. There's a resurrection. Uh, and so we have this resurrection that takes place but notice that, that uh, Nicodemus himself had brought the myrrh. Now, at the time, the world was actually expecting a Jewish king. You may not know this, but the number of historians. Suetonius, who was a Roman historian, said that there was a Jewish ruler expected who would rule over the world. Not just Israel, but over the world. Uh, Tacitus, or I think uh, Dr. Woodworth said Tacitus. I'm going to have to find out how it was really pronounced. But uh, he, he wrote that a Jewish ruler would have a universal empire. Josephus, who's probably the most famous Jewish historian, said that one from Judea would rule the inhabitable earth. Now these are remarkable statements from non-Christian historians. These are remarkable statements in the world, but they expected Jewish king. Now, let's talk about the star. What was it? Some said it was the planet Jupiter. Go out tonight, look up in the sky with your naked eyes and find the planet Jupiter, I dare you. Now, I agree. Let me, I'll give you a little bit of break here. We step outside anywhere in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and there's, there's the city lights covering up the stars. 
And I'm finding it increasingly difficult in my old age to find a place where you can see all the stars. But if you ever do make it out to Yosemite National Park and happen to be sleeping under the stars at night, or you ever do get to go out far enough into East Texas where there's no uh, lights lighting up somebody's farm, uh, you will look up and discover there are a lot of stars up there. And I still defy you, even with all the city lights turned off, can you find Jupiter? Probably not. I'm pretty good at finding Venus and Mercury in the night sky because they're fairly easy to see. They're a lot closer than Jupiter are. And I've got that app on my phone. You know, I can point my phone in the direction of the sky and it'll show me which stars are there. Uh, but they didn't have that app. Uh, so how would they have followed Jupiter? And not only that, Jupiter would have stayed in one place except for the fact that as the Earth rotated, it would appear to be at different elements on the horizon, but it would have repeated itself every night. That didn't work. Let's try another one. Uh, they say that around 2 B.C., which actually Jesus was probably born somewhere between 2 to 4 B.C., we have a little problem with uh, the difference between Jewish calendars and Gregorian calendars, etc. But there was a conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and their moons making a fish in the sky around 2 B.C. Well, first of all, the fish wasn't really a symbol of Christianity until much later. Uh, you may know that they would... Uh, when Christianity was being persecuted, somebody would come along and draw on the sand half of a fish. And if you were a fellow Christian, you draw the other half of the fish and you have what's called the ichthus symbol. Because ichthus, which is the word fish, was an abbreviation for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior in Greek. It was an abbreviation for that. Uh, and, uh, but I don't buy this one either because how would they have followed this during the day? And again, how would they have not just stayed in one place because if you see a star, try this tonight, go out, find the north star, and then stand directly under it. You can't do it. In fact, is you can't stand directly under any star because if you think you're directly under, get in the car, drive two and a half hours to the east, get out of your car, you'll still be directly under that star. You can't follow a star. That is the kind of stars that we have. So some say it was a low-hanging meteor. The problem with low-hanging meteors is that they only appear for a flash, about a second or two, and then they burn up in the atmosphere. Now, there are meteors that you could see maybe going for a while, and of course, they're not so much meteors as comets. Uh, we do know that they're comets that come by every few thousand years, or Halley's Comet's probably the most famous. I think it was last year in 1948, something like that. The problem is, is that comets still just travel in one direction. Meteors only travel in one direction. We have the account in the Bible that this thing went from the east to the west and then from the northwest to the southeast. It changed direction. It doesn't work. So there are all the problems. And not only that, the Bible says it, that when the wise men came, they found the star standing over a house. Now how would they know it was over this house and not the house across the street? It had to be something that could be very well localized. It had to be something you could navigate. It had to be in the western sky long enough. It disappears. It reappears. Now it travels from the north to southeast, and it rests over an individual house. So what was this star? I believe it was God himself. Because in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel for 40 years was led by the Shekinah glory of God. It was a pillar of fire by night. Some people might have called that a star. And it was a pillar of cloud by day. It, and uh, Revelation 22.16 calls God the bright and morning star. Isn't that interesting? Uh, there is a star out of Jacob, Numbers 
It had to be big enough uh, to lead a nation through the wilderness, so it certainly could have led three magi across the, the desert. It was visible day and night, according to Exodus 13, 21, and it was capable of positioning over an individual house. Why? Because it positioned over the tabernacle, which was the house. So let's, let's take a little closer look very quick at this star of Jacob out of Numbers chapter uh, 24. So a little background for this passage is that Israel had defeated the Ammonites, and the king of Moab, and uh, whose name is Balak, is afraid Israel might come after uh, him next. He's the, the Moab, a Moabite king, and so he hires a prophet by the name of Balak to come from Pethor to curse Israel. The problem is, is every time Balak tried to open his mouth, God forbid that Balaam, uh, first of all, he forbids him to go, uh, and he even gets him a ride on a donkey who refuses to go, and when he beats the donkey trying to make him go, the donkey turns around and talks to him. And uh, it's the only recorded time, I won't say this, I almost said something about this is one time a Democrat talks since, but I won't do that. But anyway, he, he talks to uh, ba- Balaam and says, you know, you shouldn't go this way. And, and then God reveals there's a very angel standing there ready to slay Balaam. Uh, but uh, Balaam ends up going in spite of all that. I wouldn't, I, I would have turned around at that point, I hope. But God only lets blessings come out of the mouth of Balaam every time he opens his mouth. Now, where was Balaam? Now, we need to understand something about Scripture. And that is, Scripture is inspired to the most minute detail of Scripture. Uh, It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished in in all good works. So that would include the book of Numbers. Now the book of Numbers can seem a little boring. So here we have Numbers 23.28. Listen, so Balak and Balaam, Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland. And then Balaam is looking out. He's on a mountain overlooking a valley. And he is moved to prophesy about the star out of Jacob in Numbers 24. And here's what it says. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. He's looking out at the wilderness in front of him from the top of the mountain. And Balaam lifted up eyes and he saw Israel. Look at this. The Bible's very specific here. Look at this. He saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes and the Spirit of God came upon him. Let's take a look at what he saw. Now, and here, of course, is the verse we've already read about the star out of Jacob and the Magi in in Luke 2 that we read about. We're familiar with this passage. But here's here's what they saw. This is the tabernacle that we had in the Old Testament. Now, you'll notice right over the little tent, right smack dab in the middle of the tabernacle, that's called the tabernacle proper, and it was divided into two places. There was the holy place, which had the table of showbread, the altar incense, the candlestick. Then there's a curtain. Behind that is the Ark of the Covenant, which only, only people went in there once a year on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. The Ark of the Covenant had the law of God inside. It had a, a lid on top what called the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, they had to sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat. Because why? Uh, the law would destroy you without the mercy of God. See, we all are convicted by the Ten Commandments. There's not a one of us in here that has ever kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. I don't care how hard you try. You've told at least one lie in your life. And if you say you haven't, you're a liar in right now. Okay? So we, we've all done that. Okay? We've all probably taken something that didn't belong to us, which makes you a thief. 
And, and, uh, and you've done that. I remember taking a piece of bubble gum from a store in Canyon, Texas when I was in the, in the uh, beginning of the third grade. My mother made me walk back a mile to take that bubble gum back and apologize to the store owner. And that made a vivid impression on my life still to this day. But right there, I've been a lying thief. Okay? So I need salvation. Uh, and it's only the blood of the Lamb on top of the mercy seat that shields me from the law. I think the only time Hollywood got it close to being right is when they made that Indiana Jones movie where they go after the Ark of the Covenant and they take the lid off and, and he and the girl have to keep their eyes closed all the time. Meanwhile, the angel of death destroys everybody. Because once the lid is off of the law, everybody comes under death. And that's, that's actually a valid. But then they have, this, uh, they have this fence around it. There was a gate on the east side. It's significant it's on the east side because the first tribe that camped outside the east side of the gate was Judah. So the only way you could come into the presence of God was to come through Judah. And Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of what? Judah. You had to come through there. It was on the east side. But here's the thing. You notice there's, there's tents all the way around. Uh, and from the book of Numbers, uh, this, that looked like a really cool picture, by the way. But in Numbers chapter 2, which you know, a lot of people would not find the most fascinating reading in Scripture, we have some details. I'm going to read you this very boring passage and show you how exciting it is, because this, this really gets underneath my skin. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, that's the flag, with the banners of their father's households. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Now, those who camp on the east side, so there's four compass directions. And we start with east because that's where Judah was, and that was the most important. And he says, now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah. Those who camp next to them shall be the tribe of Issachar. Then comes the tribe of Zebulun. The total numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400. And it actually gives us details about the number of people in each tribe. Now, here's the fascinating thing. There's all 12 tribes of Israel for you. And there's the numbers that are in each one. And we know which one's camped on the east, which camped on the north, which camped on the west, which camped on the south. I'm sure by now you see why I'm so excited with these statistics, right? No, not yet? Okay, let's try again. Here's, here's another way of looking at it. We have percentages there. So you can see what percentage of the nation of Israel is made up by each tribe. And we've got them color-coded. If, if you're not seeing it now, I don't, I don't know if I can help you, but we'll try. So how do they camp? We're told which ones they camped. Now, I've already mentioned Judah was on the east side. You had to come through Judah to get to the tabernacle because Jesus was the line of the tribe of Judah. But here's the beautiful part. If I lay out around the tabernacle the exact number of people represented by these proportionally sized rectangles, and I put some on the north, some on the south, some on the west, some on the east, what do you guys see there? A cross. And what's amazing is the very middle of that cross would have been the tabernacle which was lit up at night by the fiery pillar of God. And then since it was at night, all these tents, people would have hung their lanterns. And so when Balaam came out to curse Israel and he couldn't do it, he was standing on top of Mount Peor looking at the wilderness at a giant glowing cross at night. I'm sorry, but that just sends shivers up my timbers, doesn't he, you? That's just, that's an exciting thing. And boring, numbers in the, in the book of Numbers are not that boring if you, if you really get into it and look at it. So the scene which God had set before Bethlehem was a prophetic foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and uh, it's just an amazing thing. Um, 
we, he wouldn't have known what the cross was back then. We can see it in hindsight, and it's pretty amazing. And God specifically included the census on each side so that you and I could see this. Well, as I mentioned, when the Magi get to the house over which the star was hovering, they find a young child. When they had heard the king, they departed low the star which they'd seen in the east, went before them now in a direction going south, uh, southeast, till it came and stood over where the young child was. He's a toddler, usually 15 to 20 months old, and that's why Herod decided to kill everybody under the age of two. Now, so we've talked about a lot of different things in last week's message and this week's message that we have messed up in the nativity story through hundreds of years. First of all, there was no star over a manger. The star was over a house. The Magi never show up at the manger. They show up at a house where Jesus is no longer in swaddling cloths, but he's now a toddler. Uh, there were no donkeys, cattle, or anything in the manger because the manger at Migdal Adar was only for sacrificial Passover lambs, and Paul in 1 Corinthians calls Christ our Passover. Uh, the manger was not made of wood, but it was made of stone. Wood was not plentiful. Wood could not be cleansed from the blood of the previous inhabitant, whereas the stone could be washed. Stone was plentiful, and it was totally appropriate for the one who would be called the Rock of Ages. Um, the Magi were not guided by a conjunction of planets or a comet, but by the very Shekinah glory of God who could come and stand directly over an individual house and who could choose to make himself visible only to those that he chose to be able to see him. And the Magi see Jesus as a toddler in a manger. So why is the Christmas story so messed up? Why have church pageants done it wrong? Why are Christmas movies often, so often doing wrong? Well, on December 24th at 1223 A.D., a fellow by the name Francis of Assisi, whom the Catholic Church regards as a saint, and only God knows who are saints and who are sinners, but uh, he tried to recreate the scene of Christ's birth to help people understand the nativity. Problem was, is Francis of Assisi had the same problem I did with this sermon. He couldn't make it short. So he decided he had to give the Reader's Digest, and I'm sure he didn't know about Reader's Digest then, but he gave the Reader's Digest condensed story by having the Magi and the shepherds all go to the manger because that got the play down to a shorter time frame. Uh, and uh, he had the manger mat out of wood because that happened to be plentiful to him uh, where he was, and he brought the wise men into the story to condense it, and he put an ox and a donkey in the scene because he misinterpreted Isaiah 1-3 when it says the ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib. has nothing to do uh, with the Messiah being born in a manger. So he takes a detour in 1223 A.D., and because of the fact he was well-known, he was devout, he was pious, and people would imitate him, to this very day, Bible-believing churches often replicate his errors because they don't bother checking. And every time Hollywood makes a Christmas movie about the birth of Christ, I always marvel that they haven't called me to consult on the movie. Uh, and until they do, we're going to keep having these, these problems. But... Here's the thing. We have to understand that tradition is not the source of truth. There's a lot of Christianity that has a problem with this. The Catholic Church says that any time the, the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that is, in his official capacity as the Pope, that his word is equal with the word of God. 
In other words, it is just as valid as the Word of God. The Greek Orthodox Church says that, that Scripture plus all church tradition together equals God's revelation. And that's a problem when your church tradition contradicts Scripture. Because there were uh, some popes who, by the way, said that, uh, that Mary never died. She was just ascended into heaven. Others said she, her body was assumed after her death. And, and others said, well, it wasn't quite a virgin birth. It was something else. The whole point is they have popes that disagree with each other. This is why we have to base our interpretation on the one thing that never disagrees with itself, and that's the Word of God. It's consistent throughout. It is inerrant. There are no errors. It is infallible, meaning there it never fails you. It is inspired, meaning that God breathed into it. And it is imperative, meaning this isn't a book of suggestions, folks. It's meant for us to live it out in our lives. And only the Word of God. And it must always remain our only standard for faith and practice. So even the early church fathers, which what the Greek Orthodox Church seems to love so much, even the early church fathers got the story of Christmas wrong. Here's the verse I'd kind of like to end with. Isaiah 9, 6 says, He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What an amazing title, but he should be called Wonderful. That means full of wonder. There was one mathematician, and I think I mentioned this last week, who just calculated the mathematical odds of someone back in that day based on extrapolated population statistics of someone being born in Bethlehem, someone uh, coming into Jerusalem 33 years later on a donkey, uh, the odds of someone being crucified in the Roman uh, system of rule, and five other prophecies, just eight prophecies. He calculated the mathematical principle of each of these eight prophecies and then the mathematical likelihood that one person could fulfill just eight. Now, there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He's looking at just the easiest eight because after all, you can't measure the mathematical probability of someone being born of a virgin because that's a miracle and it can't happen in real uh, life. It, it has to be a miracle. But the odds of just these eight prophecies which humans could do were one in 100 decillion. I, and you just have to read how many zeros that is. That's a lot of zeros. Jesus is the greatest wonder of all. He was born to die. He was born to die for you and me and he did it because he loved us and wanted to deliver us from a certain fate of the lake of fire. Um, sometimes I wonder if Jesus would have said of me that I strain at a gnat and swallow at a camel because I take a little umbrage with uh, Christians who say that if you don't ask Jesus Christ in your heart, you spend eternity in hell. And strictly speaking, that's not true. Because the Bible says in the book of Revelation, and death and hell gave up the dead which were in them, and the sea, and these were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. Even people in hell are going to get to get out for one brief moment to hear their final judgment, and they go to the lake of fire, and that's where the lost spend eternity. Now I realize, just like, just like the fact we have a whole different version of the Christmas story, we have a slightly different version of where you spend eternity, and people use hell and lake of fire interchangeably, so if you want to say people go to hell... I'm not disfellowshipping with you. I just like to be picky. But the lake of fire is, the, is what we deserve. 
That's what I deserve. Because there, I am a sinner, and with just one sin, I have earned eternal damnation. Were it not for Jesus Christ offering himself for the cross because he loved me. And I, I never will forget the words of my roommate in college about the time that I was getting engaged to my bride, to whom I've been married for 41 years now. But we were talking about what Jesus did for us one night, and my roommate Rendell said, you know, Robert, if you'd been the only person on earth, he would have done it just for you. That still blows my mind. It blows my mind that God loved me that much, that he sent his son Jesus to die for me on the cross. That truly is amazing grace. So what can I encourage you to do this Christmas? Stop for a little while from the commercials and the materialism and the the buying presents and hoping Amazon can get them here by the 24th of December and just look with wonder upon God becoming man, the miracle of the incarnation. Marvel that he was born not in any manger or some stall out back of an inn, but that he was born at Migdal Adar, the only appropriate place for a sacrificial Passover lamb to be born. And if you didn't see that last week, you can go on our website and listen to last week's message or go on Facebook. The recording from last week is still there, and you can look us up and listen to that. And look at uh, the fact that God guided the descendants of Daniel's Magi with a star that took him right over the house. And praise God. Share these things with others. Help them increase their wonder. Because I'm telling you, it's easy to get caught up in the busyness of the season. And what we really need to do sometimes is just do what I find myself doing with my wife so often. I've been married for 41 years, and every day at least once I look at her and I just say, wow. I actually say that word out loud. We ought to look at God and what he did for us in Jesus Christ, and we ought to just say, Wow, what did you do? By the way, when a young Jewish male might see a young Jewish woman who particularly impressed him, the word that often came out of his mouth was Hallel, which was wow. And of course, when you say hallelujah, which is praise the Lord, you're really saying, wow, God. And that's what we need to do. Take some time over the rest of this month, not just to spend time with dinner preparations and gift giving, and certainly not with social media, but spend time with God. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to celebrate the birth of Christ, but you know what? It's totally appropriate because it's celebrating the greatest gift we were ever given. In fact, as I think the psalm Brother Stephen has picked is very apropos for us to think about the king who left his throne. So would you turn to number 223 as Brother Stephen leads us.